week in cycling. A history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener. This week in cycling history in 1973, Franz Verbeek finished second at Liège-Bastogne-Liège. There was a 14-man sprint at the end of the race in the Rockour track in Liège. And after they crossed the line, Verbeek was receiving the congratulations of the onrushing fans and journalists. Everybody thought he had won. Even Merckx approached him and shook his hand, conceding victory. But when the photo finish was analysed, it appeared that Merckx had beaten Verbeek by 10 centimetres. Verbeek was a Flandrian who spent his career trying to win the Tour of Flanders and never quite managing to achieve it. Having won the amateur edition in 1965, Verbeek rode and finished the professional edition 10 times and finished in the top 20 in all of them, including three podium places. He was a hired man who was notorious for the amount of miles he racked up in training. The British ex-pro Dave Lloyd said this about Verbeek. It was pouring with rain, but we could see someone cycling along in training kit and a waterproof top. I remember thinking that he was mad, whoever he was. But then we saw that it was Franz Verbeek. He just won the race we'd all been in, and he was still out there riding. Although he tasted victory in races like Amstel Gold, Flesh Wallone, and Het Volk, he never won a Monument Classic, and was most certainly a victim of the era he was a part of. His career coincided with the golden generation of Belgian classic stars, which included Walter Godefroot, Roger de Vlaminck, and Eddie Merckx. But Verbeek still thought he could win. He said... I believed that I had the ability to go against Merckx in races, right across the board. I was good in all races. I wasn't a specialist. I was an all-rounder, the same as Merckx. The defeat to Merckx in the 1973 Liège-Bastogne-Liège was just one race in a remarkable series of defeats that year. In 11 classics, Verbeek finished second four times and finished in the top 10 in all of them, but didn't win a single one. Welcome to this episode 9 of This Week in Cycling History with me, John Galloway, and my co-host... Killian Kelly. I tell you, in 1973, that's when uh, men were men and sheep were nervous, isn't it? What a time that must have been to watch Cycle. Yeah, well, what, well, what a time to watch Eddie Merckx absolutely dominating everything. But um, the, the, I, I suppose the message in that is um, we, we often come back to Eddie Merckx winning everything, and, and obviously he did, but the, the kind of the, there are so many interesting stories of the guys that he just beat all the time. And... Uh, I, I know there's, there's obviously two Merckx books out at the moment, and uh, I actually haven't read either of them, but I know I, I read a review of the William Fotheringham one, and uh, I, I think, of uh, at least what I expect to read in that one, is the, these stories of these guys that came second all the time, and uh, they're slowly, kind of as they're approaching old age, begin to, beginning to become less resentful and, and just maybe thankful of the fact that they actually got to ride with this absolutely incredible man. And... Um, you know, like that 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 season that Verbeek had, you know, in um in 1973 was just it, it was I I've never seen anything like it. I, I looked it up and I, I wrote out this list of of of, of where he came in all these classics. Mm-hmm. And like he came second in Ghent Wevelgem, came second in Amstel Gold, he came second in Liège Bastogne Liège, Harry Brussels, the four days of Dunkirk, and Torino Adriatico, and he and he didn't win any of them. And like most of them, in most of them, he was beaten by Eddie Merckx. And like Eddie Merckx, just he he came, I, I don't know, he like he he won. I think he won four classics that year. He won Ghent Wevelgem, mm-hmm. uh, Amstel Gold, Liège, Bastogne Liège, and Paris Brussels. And he would have won the Tour of Lombardy had he not tested positive for I can't remember what it was. The the awesomeness. Uh, he tested positive for awesomeness. <laughs> yeah. And they they gave the win to Felice Gimondi, maybe just to spread it around a little bit more. But I mean, no, uh, nineteen seventy four is the year Merckx probably get to remember most for because that was when he did the triple crown but man 1973 was just incredible also 
Um, I think it's if you're for Becky, I mean, can you imagine the feeling just seeing somebody cross the line in front of you again? But yeah. Even more heartbreaking in this race to think you've won and Merckx wanders across and shakes your hand. Yeah. And you're thinking, oh, I've done it. I've finally done it. And somebody just goes, sorry, mate, you were second. Yeah. Heartbreaking. Again. Heartbreaking. Yeah. And, and, like, it's just, yeah, and another heartbreaking story about um, Verbeek. Um, like he, he tried to win the Tour of Flanders he was a Flandrian and he tried to win the Tour of Flanders so many times and like I'll just call out this list of, of positions that he, he got in the Tour of Flanders starting in 1969 he came 8th 4th 16th 3rd 7th 2nd 9th and 8th <laughs> and that's all in a row 9 years in a row and in, like I, I watched YouTube footage there of him uh, after the 1975 race and uh, he, he was beaten obviously by Eddie Merckx again and um, he, he, it was just a pair of them came to the finish. And I think he really thought he, he might have beaten them this time. And, and th- there's, there's footage of both of them being interviewed at the same time by different people after the race. And Merckx is just, it's like as if he's just woken up and put on his clothes in the morning. He's as fresh as a daisy in his World Champions jersey. Yep. And just doing his interview, you know, not a bother. And there's Verbeek slumped over like the railing that's next to him, just absolutely gutted. And you know, but it's just a measure of of Merckx that he just didn't care, just relentlessly, just took victories away from these people. But uh, I suppose another thing to say about Verbeek is he um, he started this clothing line called Vermark Clothing. I don't know whether you've heard I'm, of that. I'm familiar with it. Yeah, uh, like I, I I think they make both Quickstep and Lotto Belisov clothes, yeah. amongst many others. So I'd say he's made more money out of that than he ever did out of racing, possibly because of Eddie Merckx. <laughs> it's funny, actually, I mean, because you've got a quote in there from Dave Lloyd, and uh, one of one of the earliest Velocast listeners and a, a subscriber now who's uh, got my favourite name of, of anybody that listens to us, with the possible exception of the famous Jan Valencia, is Plunkett McGreevy, a fellow Irishman. Well, and he night. went for a, a day's riding with Dave Lloyd, and Lloyd is still ripping the legs off people. But, I mean, the thing about that quote is Merckx, I think, was quoted as saying that he did more miles than anybody else, and that was one of the reasons he won, you know, because when the others got in the team buses, he'd be riding back to the hotel and he'd ride to the start of the race. But that Dave Lloyd thing shows that Verbeek, it wasn't through lack of trying. You know, he was out there after races, training and training and training, and still drawing the short straw when he came up against Eddie. So... That's, he's become a footnote in history, but what a man! I mean, a Palmaris like that. Oh, you need a couple of wins, and you're you know you're one of the greats in, in Flanders, and he, he just missed out. In 1987, Moreno Argentan won Liège Bastogne Liège, coming from behind to beat Stephen Roach and Claude Croquillon. Croquillon had put in a massive attack going over La Redoute with 40 kilometres to go. Roach was the only rider who could follow. Argentan got within 10 metres of Roach's back wheel, but blew up and retreated back to the group behind. Roach and Croquillon worked well together to reach the final kilometre, where a one-on-one sprint seemed inevitable. But as the pair played cat and mouse, the chasers behind were closing in. In these, the days before race radios, Roach and Croquillon were oblivious. Those closing in included Argentan, Robert Miller and Yvonne Maddio. Argentan, who had beaten both Roach and Croquillon in a three-man sprint the previous year in the same race, caught the pair with 400 metres to go and won the resulting sprint easily. The trio had this to say after the race, starting with Argentan. It is a gift from the skies. On the climb of La Redoute, I had the cramp. Croquillon was going too fast for me. He was too strong. I had lost. I was nearly dropped by Mario and Miller, but I held on to them. Then suddenly, I saw Croquillon and Roach, 150 metres in front of us. 
I threw all my forces into the final meters, but I still do not understand how it happened. Crocillion said, It is unbelievable. We lacked information. If we had known how close the others were, we would not have sacrificed all the efforts we had made. And finally, Roach said, Nobody told us our rivals were coming up. Then suddenly, as Crocillion took the lead to start the sprint, I saw a wheel come up to my side. It was Argentan. I did not have time to realise what was happening. It was the closest Roach would ever come to winning a classic. Argentan, on the other hand, had won Liège-Bastogne-Liège for the third year in a row, and he did so while wearing the rainbow jersey. He remains the last rider to have won this race as world champion. Now, I mean, we've taken great joy in the fact that um, the man that you went to the pub with, Sean Kelly, pipped Argentan at the post in uh, Milan-San Remo. But I, I remember this race, actually. It was just when I was really getting into trying to find sources for following continental cycling. And uh, Krakelian, he was a bit like Verbeek. You know, he was one of those guys who was a Walloon and, and kept trying to win the race that meant everything to him. And people kept pipping him at the post. But uh, a classic addition, this one in Argentin, whatever we think about him now, you know, because we've, with the history of Gavis and everything, he was a dominant force at the time and one of the great classics riders. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to win... We, we, I've said it before, like to win any race two years in a row was unbelievable. But I mean, he won Liege Bastogne Liege three times in a row, which really, really was impressive. And and as I said, as as the last rider to do it as world champion. But um, I, I I read a little bit from Roach's autobiography there. Um, it was released years ago, and he said after that race, he said he did, he never used to take losing well. But he said after that race, that was the only race he ever cried after he didn't win because he just was so devastated that that's what happened. And uh, I know there's another kind of uh, probably semi-famous story that uh, his director sportif, David Boyfava, if I hope I got that right, um, had had said to him before, he, he was kind of upset with himself that he didn't convert chances into wins as much as he maybe should. And uh, Boy Fava had said to him before, right before this Liege based on Liege that uh, he, um, in order to win, he should be willing to lose, and you know to, to do what he did pretty much to play cat and mouse and to be w- willing to uh, hold his cards to his chest to the last possible moment and and to put it all on the line in order to be able to win. But I think Roach just took that just to too too much of an extreme in this scenario and ended up paying the price and he never won a classic which was i suppose well he i mean he won the worlds but he never he never won one of the orthodox classics which is unbelievable when you think about it. i mean I'd, I'd never i'd never even thought about that because roach has got his place in history secured by you know the the triple crown that he got yeah but the fact that he never won any of the orthodox classics with a talent like that it's amazing yeah. This um, this is from a period of Liege Bastogne Liege, which I, I'm really fond of, and one of the reasons that Cote de la Redoute's one of the favourite claims for me in the Ardennes is it used to be the launching pad for a lot of attacks, um, and I, I kind of miss that now that everybody's so good that it eventually just comes down to the last twenty k. Whereas here, when somebody was good in the day, they could genuinely force a break, and Roach, good on him, you know, for sticking with Krakulian. But Argentin, what a canny man. And that's uh, you know that's what he should again. He had a smart racing head on him as well. Well, I think a lot of it has to do maybe with the race radios thing again. I mean, those all those quotes after uh, the race from all three of them suggested that, you know, nobody really knew where the others were. And uh, it added so much to the finish of that race. And, you know, there's so much debate going on on whether race radios make... Uh, 
make racing exciting or, or take take a lot away from them. I, I mean, maybe it's it does. the danger, though. I mean, riders must have been dropping dead left, right and centre if you're to believe the likes of Jens Vogt about race radios <laughs> being essential for safety. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I tell you what, I've got a theory about this um, that I, I don't think radios kind of ruin um, the excitement of racing as much as power meters. And I don't think riders should be allowed in races with power meters. Whatever about training, that's fine. You know, go out... Uh, figure out what your limits are and, and work to that for training purposes. But in races, I really don't think they should be able to ride around with parameters in front of them, telling them uh, just exactly what, what what they're pushing out. I mean, if you're if you're in a break of enough five riders and, and one of them g- goes away from you and you're on your limit and you're looking down at your watts and it's reading whatever four eight five and you know that you can't go twenty watts more than this. Uh, you know, uh, uh, at the at the gradient that you're on, then you're not going to do it. Whereas if you didn't have a power meter in front of you and a guy goes up the road and you're in a group of five and you think, you know, I'm not feeling too bad, you know, maybe I can't follow that guy. If you're if you don't have a power meter in front of you, you might follow him up the road, and and the ra- the race would be completely different and it would all be done by feel. And I think famously Thomas Vockler doesn't ride with a power meter. I think I might be right in saying, and that sort of the, the movement of his tongue would interfere with its wireless <laughs> communications. <laughs> maybe maybe yeah. <laughs> But uh, but you know that's uh, his style is maybe indicative of the fact that he doesn't ride with a parameter that he he does these attacks with reckless abandon and uh, suffers the consequences sometimes you know he doesn't always make it to the finish but a lot of the time he does and yeah. you know maybe maybe people might might learn from from that I think you may have a point there I mean going back I'm sure I've talked about this before on the Velocast but. Um... Back when I used to time trial, I, I'm sure I missed a couple of PBs because I wouldn't let my pulse go above what I, you know what I thought it should be. Yeah, and it's exactly that. If you're feeling good in the day or whatever, then you know if you if you're a slave to the information and with the amount of training that they do with you know very carefully prescribed power limits and that sort of thing, maybe mod, a lot of modern riders are. So you're right. We might need a bit more spontaneity. Now, was this during the period? This was during the, the period when it finished down on the the banks of the Meuse, wasn't it? So it was almost a sprint finish. It was a flatter thing. It was a flat finish. Yeah, I know we talked about this last week, and you completely disagreed with me. But uh, um, like I did, this, obviously, that scenario that played out in 1987 wouldn't have happened if it ended on a hill either. I would, I would say, I'd say probably Roach would have won it. Actually, to tell you the truth, after watching the Ardennes week, I'm, I'm kind of agreeing with you now because. Um, I mean, what the the fact that you had the Cowberg, um, you know, and Côte de Saint Nicolas and Liège, um, just difficult finishes to races. I think encourages riders, and I mean, this is where I show I was talking crap last week, because it just encourages riders to wait for the final climb. Especially when you have a really strong team like the the whole US Postal Tour de France model of just you know going 100 miles an hour at the front until you know so nobody can attack if you if you do have a really strong team in the race that's capable of keeping that speed up so you can't attack in this case it was bmc in, in the age of the age they managed to neutralize any attacks on the reduce i mean it's easy for us to to sit here and say why did nobody attack on the reduce but i'm sure bmc were absolutely drilling that pace and i'd say it was very very difficult for anybody to consider attacking at that moment and so ultimately you- it comes to the old classic it's the riders who make the race not you know not just the terrain yeah, that, well, that, that's always true, yeah. yeah. Anyway, we'll go into a favourite rider of mine and per- perhaps the darkest moment in his career. Uh, this is a tale of Greg LeMond and turkeys. In 1987, Greg LeMond was shot by his brother-in-law in a hunting accident. LeMond had won the Tour de France the previous year, beating Bernard Eno into second place. With Eno now retired, LeMond was expected to dominate the Tour for years to come. 
But all that was to change in April 1987 when LeMond decided to go out turkey hunting. LeMond describes the shooting himself. I remember hearing Pat whistle, trying to figure out where we were, but I didn't respond because I thought that if I could understand his whistle, surely the birds could too. Then he stopped whistling for a while and I remember getting up. I was going to stand and see where everybody was. That's when I got shot. The movement did it. He saw that movement in the bushes and reacted. I was crouching and just starting to get up when I was shot. At first I wasn't sure what had happened. When someone else is shooting at a target, it sounds as if it's some distance away. But when Pat shot me, it sounded as if my own gun had gone off. My first realisation that anything had happened was that I saw there was blood on the ring finger on my left hand. Then I felt numbness. When you get shot, you go into shock instantly and don't really know what's going on. I must have tried to stand up again and I almost passed out. I tried talking, but my right lung had collapsed and I could barely breathe. Oh my God, I thought, I've been shot. An initial report of the shooting said that LeMond was expected to be out of action for at least two months. But between LeMond's recovery from the shooting, combined with a series of injuries resulting from trying to return to racing too hurriedly, LeMond didn't return to top form on the bike for more than two years. So do you think he would have won five if he hadn't been shot by uh, a member of his family? Yeah, probably would have, yeah. I'm, I mean, I've I've made no secret. I'm a, a big fan of uh, of Lamond, and it, it's arguable that if he hadn't had this break in his career, which brought his career to an untimely end in the end, um, yeah. he might not have been so fired up to you know, to prove that he was back. And we might have missed out on some some classic duels with, particularly thinking about Fignon here. Yeah, yeah, I never quite thought of it that way. You kind of just you'd look at the. You know, I know in the 1987 tour, um, there was it was seen as one of these transitional tours, and there was no real outstanding favourite because Le Mans had been shot and Eno had retired, and Fignon had his own injury troubles, and there was no um, there was no rider in the race that had ever won the tour, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it was seen as wide open. And I suppose the same went for 1988. I know Delgado had come second in 1987, but Roach wasn't there in '88. Fignon was still struggling. Uh, you know th- those two tours were quite um, open, and uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose we can only assume and maybe presume that Le Mans w- would have won those two races if he had been around. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting point. <laughs> would he have? Would he have tried as hard in 1989? Um, obviously, well, nine essentially he didn't have a team. You know, he had one rider who could do anything for him, uh, and he was. I mean, it was an incredible performance from a, a Le Mans who. It come back virtually at the peak of his powers, um, and I think because he was fresh after the years out, and I mean fresh is comparative because he still had all that lead in his body and it was leaching out his ability to recover. Yeah. But during those three weeks, other than I mean we've talked before about Fino in the I think the eighty four tour and the eighty three tour, but particularly eighty four. Other than that, I don't think I've ever seen a rider who was just the equivalent of a team in his own. It was a brilliant performance and it, it really endeared them to me. Yeah, and I, I know um, Le Mans gets a lot of stick for um, pioneering the, the approach to the Tour de France where you don't really focus on any other races, um, an approach that was kind of taken up by Lance Armstrong and and, and more recently by, by Contador and Schleck, I suppose, as well. But, uh, I mean, to be fair to Le Mans, I mean, you, you said he still had those pellets in his body. I mean, that's that's true. And, you know, he won those two Tours de France in 89 and 1990 with lead pellets in his yeah. in his body. But before he got shot, I mean, we have to say he was he really tried in the classics. I mean, when you look back through the list of results, usually the, the only results you see on face value are the top three. And he never really 
Correct. Well, no, that's not true, actually. Um, he, he never really appeared in the top three often, but he was always up there in the top ten in, in these classics. Like, uh, it, you know, he he, uh, he actually came second in the Tour of Lombardy and Milan San Remo. Yeah. And, you know, he came fourth in Paris-Roubaix. And he, I think he finished ninth in Paris-Roubaix as recently as 1992, I, I, I think I might be saying. But he had, he had this really, really impressive set of results in the classics from when he started in 1982 to 1986 when he got shot, or, you know, or late 1986. And, um, he, uh, you know, we can hardly blame him for... Uh, I must confess, I always thought he had a, a Roubaix win in him. And if he hadn't had... Uh, I think a lot of the time he was working for Gilbert Duclos-Lasalle. Um, and if he hadn't had a, you know, a proven rider for Ruby like that and had been given a free hand, um, because he was one a great one for if he had teammates who could pay him back later in the season. You know, he'd work for them yeah. in races that were important to them. And I, I think we might have seen a Ruby from Le Mans because he was, he was majestic over the cobbles. Not that I'm a fanboy, you understand. <laughs> yeah. um, I, sp- I suppose he, he also... Won the worlds as well in 1989 after the tour, and you know not many tour riders or tour tour contenders uh, race the worlds anymore. Now I know in, in that in those days it was much closer to the end of the tour, so it was easier for the tour contenders to maintain form and, and maintain interest to uh, to take part in the worlds. But uh, you know I suppose he must be applauded for that as well that uh, um, he he did that, and he was the last Tour de France winner to uh, to to win the tour as as world champion. Well, as I, as I say, well, I'm definitely, just like a world record, I'm definitely going to try and do a special on Le Mans because uh, he's a big part of, of, of me growing into loving cycling. So I think that's us this week, Killian, and it's episode nine. We're nearly at double figures, mate. It's mind-boggling. Mind <laughs> it's, your, it's your sultry Irish tones. If people want to, to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? Irish Peloton. It's, uh, it's well worth a follow. Killian will bore you witless with statistics during most races, as well as being entertaining at other times. Uh, and I'm at Sofa Boy, and I'm mostly irrelevant. But uh, if you want to follow both of us, get involved in the conversation because that's a big bit of the fun of this. And please, please leave a comment on iTunes because it helps other people to find us. 